2: Bring in show music,
3: please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. X, formerly Twitter, is luring back advertisers, or trying to. Former chief technology officer for the White House, Anish Chopra, on X's new deal for brand safety.
0: Are we going to make sure that no one's ads apply next to a tweet that is perhaps questionable? I doubt it.
3: And one year gone since the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act took hold, one of President Biden's advisors on both, Brian Deese.
0: In a
1: year, we've seen the most significant economic response to any piece of legislation in 70 years.
3: Plus, Lyft attempts to outcompete other ride shares. It's a car eat car world.
4: I arbitrage between Lyft, Uber, and a yellow taxicab.
3: And we'll get into Disney's gambling deal and a new executive order on tech ventures in China.
4: So what do you think of all of this?
3: It's a chock-full Wednesday. It's August 9th, and Squawk Pod begins right now.
4: Stand, Andrew, by In
2: 3, 2, 1, cue Andrew.
4: Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Melissa Lee. Joe and Becky are off today, so it is once again... Just the two of us.
5: <laughs> That's a song, uh, isn't it? It is just, it is a
4: song. It's just, it could be the theme song this morning.
5: Well, the U.S. is planning to ban private equity and venture capital investments in some Chinese technology companies. Reports say President Biden plans to issue that executive order today. It is expected to cover direct investments in three sectors semiconductors, quantum computing, and artificial intelligence. The order will prohibit investments in some forms of those technologies and require Americans to disclose investments to U.S. government in some cases.
4: And you know the one that's not necessarily going to be included, which TikTok.
5: TikTok, that's your thing.
4: It's my th- it's, it's not been my thing. It's been it's been every, it's been the national security thing right for so long. But no
5: action has been taken. And yet no it's a bipartisan right cause. It's and I'm, a I'm not saying problem. by the way
4: it should be. I'm not sure it should be, mm-hmm. but I just it's surprising to me given all this effort in this regard and why for example under the AI rubric for example it wouldn't mm-hmm. be included.
5: Think of all the data the Chinese government has access to. And
4: that's what people say.
5: I mean, it has all the, how many lazy girl videos Andrew Ross Sorkin watches per day.
4: I have yet to be convinced, by the way, the Chinese government is seeing all of these TikToks in terms of the way, because, you know, they're trying to build this thing in a separate way, but that's a separate story.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think the concern, though, is that it has access, in theory, to the algorithm and can push certain narratives onto the American people
4: but owned in part by, like, every private equity firm in New York City. Right. (laughs) Meantime, Disney's ESPN getting into sports gambling is a huge story. The company signed a long-term exclusive agreement with casino operator Penn Entertainment, licensing its brand for sports betting. Penn will have 10-year rights to use the ESPN bet name in the U.S. Penn. In in the U.S., Penn will rebrand its barstool sports book, with the ESPN name starting this fall. Axios reporting that the deal won't prohibit ESPN from selling ad space to rival digital sportsbooks like DraftKings or FanDuel. Penn also said it's selling all of its Barstool sports subsidiary to Dave Portnoy, who founded the brand in a video announced in Portnoy saying they underestimated how tough it would be to operate in a regulated world and admitted that the sportsbook was denied licenses because of him personally. Penn paid $551 million to buy Barstool. The sale back to Portnoy reportedly now includes no upfront cash. Penn will have the right to 50% of gross proceeds in the event that Portnoy sells or monetizes Barstool. Portnoy also agreed to a non-compete. So, what do you think of all of this? Um, well, Disney, on so many fronts. There's the Disney side. There's the, Disney, there's the yeah, Portnoy I mean, piece. I think with Disney's earnings tonight, yeah, the, pen the piece. The, the
5: Disney side of it is really interesting because it really underscores, I think, Disney's um, need to entertain all ways of really monetizing that ESPN brand. Right. It already acquired a, a stake in DraftKings through its acquisition of Fox Entertainment assets in. I forgot when, 2019, was it? Um, And so, you know, this is another step towards that. It had always been considered taboo for Disney to be embedding, Mm -hmm. right, because of the risk to the brand, to the family image brand. Um, But they got to do this. It makes a lot of sense.
4: Clearly, by the way, and we'll go back to the Portnoy report in a minute, they had to get rid of Barstool to make a deal like this.
5: There's no way that Disney could be associated in any way, shape, or form with David Portnoy.
4: And that's, that's, that's an interesting sort of that's component an part, part of the story. Yeah, definitely. Look, the big story today hasn't happened yet. It's going to be in the call. The Disney call Absolutely. today, it's all going to be about, does Bob Iger really articulate a clearer message mm-hmm. than what he said to David Faber, which uh, on our air.
2: Transformative work is dealing with businesses that are no growth businesses and what to do
0: about them. But we have to be open-minded and objective about the future of those businesses, yes.
2: Meaning that they're not core to Disney? That they may not be core to Disney, yeah.
4: Which raised all sorts of questions and has basically... Put
5: everything out there. Really put everything out
4: there. Really changed the narrative around Disney. Mm -hmm. It's created, you know, how many news cycles about what's going to happen to those linear channels? All of the folks at places like ABC are going to be sitting there listening, trying to figure out are they core or not core to the business as he... Okay. as he referenced last time, but what's going to happen to some of these other pieces? What does it mean to have other partners? Now, I don't believe that when he said partnerships for ESPN that he was necessarily talking about this. This is one sort of smaller piece.
5: Seems like a small piece.
4: The question is, that, you know, is, is there an NBA deal or is, is there a deal with one of the leagues or many of the leagues? Right. Is there a deal with an Amazon? I still think that, that an Amazon type of deal where they become a partner in some mm-hmm. kind of DTC Kind of property, but that to me is and going to be the whole game.
5: That would be good, but I think that the bigger questions are around Hulu. It is around sort of these well, Hulu,
3: assets that Hulu are Hulu
4: is. I think on a straight path to being sold, or uh, I mean, Hulu, our parent company is going to sell its stake back to them. I think that's not really up for grabs at this point.
5: Well, I think we'll how, much, pretty how, how much
4: explicitly how much it, how much they pay.
5: Yeah, they don't have a balance sheet that would allow them to pay a lot of money. They've got a ton of debt on their balance
4: sheet. Totally, but it's, it's 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 a legal it's a legal situation at this point. Yeah, Meaning I mean I get, they had, so An arbitrator is going to decide, uh, or an ar- <laughs> someone's going to decide what the value is, and then it's going to, yeah. and then they're going to have to pay, I think.
5: Um, but in terms of the assets like ABC that you mentioned, yep. what role does that have? Well, and what role and, does that have long
4: term? Also, in a Hulu, is right. actually an interesting piece because a lot of those properties Shows that he said on- that he said may not be core end up on these. So then the question is, are there studios or is it the channels themselves right. that get sold?
5: And, and who buys them? And we talked right. to Rich uh, Greenfield of LightShed. There's Light not Shed.
4: a lot of folks out there who want to double down right now on this.
5: Media folks want to deleverage. They right. don't want to leverage up and buy another asset, let alone an asset that even Bob Iger can't right. figure out what to do with.
4: Well, and that's why maybe so. private equity comes in. I mean, that's, you know, in sort of a direct TV, you know, TPG with direct TV, that, that's a right. model of sorts of a declining asset that you run for cash. Yeah. And you don't, you know, you, you're not going to capture the multiple on it, mm-hmm. but boy, you're going to capture the cash on yeah. it. Yeah. So.
5: All big questions for Disney tonight.
4: Another story we're watching this morning is Lyft because the shares, they are lower. Take a look right now. Uh, shares trailing now off about almost 8%. Ride-hailing service reported adjusted earnings of 16 cents per share, beating estimates of a loss of a penny per share. Revenue grew 3% to just over $1 billion, in line with Wall Street's expectations. Now, Lyft used the cost savings from laying off 24% of its staff, try to lower prices and claw back some market share from rival Uber. Those cost cuts took a toll on Lyft's revenue per ride metric. Uber stock has, of course, as we've talked about, vastly uh, outperformed Lyft to date. Having said that, Mm -hmm. uh, they have a new CEO in Lyft, yes, who sure. is much more aggressive about pricing, mm-hmm. wanting to be more competitive. In fact, the fact that they want to be competitive is one of the things that has actually weighed to the degree there's been any weight at all on Uber's price because we may get back to one of these days where people are trying to arbitrage the prices from their app. And it's, it's, that has always been the, the, if you're a shareholder of these companies, you didn't really want them to compete on price.
5: You do that, don't
4: you? I, I feel oh, like you do. Oh my goodness, I you do. do? I arbitrage how between how much
5: difference would there be? How I arbitrage between
4: Lyft, Uber, and? and a yellow taxi cab. Okay. And I will e- I will often even or- I'll uh, order I'll I'll order the car if you will on the app, and and I'm willing to accept the five dollar or whatever cancellation, cancellation because fee, the
5: arbitrage is so great.
4: Because the arbitrage on taking the taxi these days is oftentimes so great. So losing, even when you add in the five dollars, even if you lose the five dollars. Absolutely, but the more we talk about this on the air, the, the bigger more. problem it is for me when I get into the back of the vehicle because we have actually a lot of Uber and Lyft drivers who happen to watch Squawk Box, and I have gotten into
5: too many. Do you have a three-story? I've rating gotten into the back of, of too many cars
4: where they've said, "Did you did you arbitrage us today?" <laughs> I mean, I, you know, and then we have conversations about Bitcoin and other things. Um, my rating isn't as high as I would like it to because be. Because of... I don't think it's because of th- yeah, that. I've been good. told two things. Uh-huh. If you want to keep your rating high... Yes. You, if you're going to use the telephone, tell the driver before you're going to use the telephone, oh, I'm going to use the telephone now. It's like a... Like, there's oh, a It's a okay. thing. And the other is, because we live in buildings in New York City... Right. Um, don't order the car until you are literally downstairs waiting on... Oh, front. I
5: never keep the Uber waiting.
4: Don't ever leave never. them waiting. The waiting is... Is That's a killer. killer. That's a rating killer. Rating killer.
5: And maybe the arbitrage too.
4: Yeah. You know, you can actually go on to Uber now and see how many times you've gotten a five-star, four-star, like, on a per? They won't tell oh, you which really? drive it is, but they'll tell you the actual.
3: Oh, and I, we're going to do that during the break. Cheese will be next. Coming up, one year since the Inflation Reduction in Chips and Science Acts became signature parts of the Biden administration's agenda. A key player joins us, Brian Deese, former National Economic Council director.
1: I think these investment packages, this industrial strategy, is about something bigger. It's about changing structurally productivity trends in the country, changing our capacity in the country. That is a long needed and potentially really positive economic story.
2: The politics of it, you know, we'll have to see.
3: Squawk Pod rolls on after this.
2: Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's
3: AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds.
2: Really? Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now.
3: Canva.com, designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. a leading global asset manager. This is SquawkPod.
2: Pod. Up and Andrew, Q.
4: Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC Live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Melissa Lee. We keep saying it's just the two of us. That is a song, uh, but we've been having <laughs> a you ball. sing it at some point? I will. Before, be, are you here for the rest of the week as well?
5: Um, I'll be back on Friday, so you have okay. time to practice. I got
4: time to practice. President Biden taking a bit of a victory lap, but one year after signing that inflation reduction in Chips and Sciences Act into law, the president traveling across the country touting his administration's accomplishments. Called Bidenomics. Someone who helped uh, enact the Bidenomics program is at our table. Brian Deese, uh, good morning to you. It's good to see you. So here's here's the thing that I and I'm just go straight to it. There's a lot of good that I think has come out of this. I think, however, for reasons that I are inexplicable to me, if you look at the polls, we have a presidential election coming. For there's a huge swath of of Americans who are not prepared, A, to vote for President Biden again, but B, even polled on their view of the economy, they don't think it's very good. What do you make of that?
1: Well, let's start with the economics and then go to the politics. On the economics, in a year, we've seen the most significant economic response to any piece of legislation in 70 years. We've seen a doubling of manufacturing construction, and under the hood you see that in semiconductors, but you also see that in clean energy, announced projects, multiples of what we've ever seen in this country before. And that holds the prospect for driving productivity, for driving better job opportunities in the future, um, and for meeting our climate goals, out of the gate, very strong. So then you go to the politics and say, well, why is this not immediately translating? Look, people have a lot of theories. I go to sort of the most simple and basic, which is, People are rational, and they see something that's good news, and they ask themselves, "Well, that's good. Is that going to sustain across time?" And so, economists like to say, you know, sentiment operates with a lag. I think what that means is people are rational, and they want to see is the good news going to translate into long-standing good news for their communities. You know, I was down in that TSMC facility uh, in the uh, in the Phoenix region, and you have in that region now semiconductor facilities, battery facilities, creating a bit of a hub in that space. That has the potential to change the trajectory for so many families in that region. But I think they legitimately are gonna ask, is this gonna be here a year, two, three, four? So it's gonna take some time.
4: So that's actually very interesting. If we were to actually go to the areas that should benefit from this the most, yeah. it's actually even, even worse, I imagine, if you look at some of these states and, and you look at the people in those, in those regions, do they say to themselves, I'm a Biden voter as a
1: function of this? No, I think it's, so I think it's the opposite in the following sense, which is the closer you get to the ground level, the more concrete and tangible this becomes. And this is why I think to understand the impact of this, these three pieces of legislation, including infrastructure, you have to use a map. You have to go very specifically to these specific places. And that's why we're also seeing the sort of strange politics of Republicans claiming credit or not denying credit when there's actually a facility that's being built in their district. Because at the very local level, these things become less particle uh, partisan political right. and more practical. So the question is, does that aggregate up, and does that aggregate to a national story that people who may not have themselves or a kid who's interested in going into the semiconductor industry, do they understand that it's part of a broader national trend? Do you think all of this is inflationary?
4: Uh, no, because I, part of the part of the story, and I think yeah. why, to the extent that Americans feel feel what they feel about the economy, yeah. it's an inflation story. It's it's that their wages have not, you know, tracked and 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 caught up to
1: how much things cost. Yeah, so in terms of consumer sentiment, I think that a lot of this is about inflation. And a lot of it is about what has been so unique about this economy. Everything about this economy has been out of sample for the last two or three years, including the run-up in inflation. And again, to go to the most simple explanation, when real wages are falling, people feel like they can buy less and they also feel uncertainty in their lives. We know that that's what inflation does. For the last year, we've seen that flip. And I think a lot of what people missed in the resilience story and in the, you know, the improvement in the economic outlook is that real wages have now for several months been running positive and that changes people's sentiment. We're starting to see that in the sentiment data. You should start to see that run through. I think these investment packages, this industrial strategy is about something bigger. It's about changing structurally, productivity trends in the country, changing our capacity in the country. That is a long needed and potentially really positive economic story. The politics of it, you know, we'll have to see.
5: But ultimately, I mean, when, when the Fed talks about a 2% inflation target, if we're structurally changing the way our economy is, is built by reshoring, shouldn't that, that inflation target just naturally be higher? Because it does cost more money to make a chip on U.S. ground as opposed to in Taiwan or, or elsewhere.
1: Yeah look i think that that may be where we're headed over the uh over the medium term but you know for on this show and many of us and many of you in the last decade we spent most of our time worried about this issue of secular stagnation that actually we were going to operate below our productive capacity for structural reasons and i think that this investment campaign has the potential to change that structurally that means that you would operate in a higher growth higher wage, mm-hmm. um, higher rate environment, and, uh, higher inflation environment, but uh, b- b- but to do so in a way that you get to a stable equilibrium that actually produces better real wage outcomes for Americans and higher productivity uh, growth over the long term. That's within sight now. Uh, right. Obviously, this trans- everything about this transition is unique, but that's within sight.
5: Do you feel like the Inflation Reduction Act was named appropriately?
1: Okay. Look, i mean
5: it, it was it was it was announced it was passed when yeah. inflation had peaked yeah. basically yeah. so it's not because of the inflation reduction act that we saw inflation come down. It was a lot of other forces going on. It may still bring inflation down in the future, but do you think that was the right thing to call it, given what it's you're you're saying it's promising growth yeah jobs you know all these other right. things
1: yeah i look i think that uh I think that there's a lot of creativity that goes into uh, naming pieces of legislation. What I would say on this front, though, is and, and on the one year anniversary, we're talking a lot about fiscal issues, too. One of the things about the Inflation Reduction Act that we talk less about, we talk about investment in clean energy and this you know, industrial uh, strategy. It was also a valuable model for how to address our fiscal issues because it was about investing and cutting the deficit. And we all know that cutting the deficit in our political environment right now is very difficult. Right. IRA provides a model to do that, invest in some areas, but also reduce the deficit. How
4: concerned are you, or do you say to yourself, this is going to be success, that that the clean energy programs that have been put in place are being used, the uptake on those programs are being used at multiples, I think, most of the expectations of what people ever anticipated, in which case there's going to be a lot more subsidies and a lot more things uh, that had not been put into the, baked into the original cake, so when we go look at these numbers, five, ten years from now, I I don't know, do you say this is great success and it looks more attractive? Or are you
1: going to say, actually this cost us
4: a small fortune and what did we get
1: for it? Yeah. It's a great question it goes to the fundamental of the economic response we've seen, right? At core, this is about private sector investment. And that's what's unique about these three sets of bills is they've accomplished something that government policy doesn't always accomplish, which is to provide enough long-term certainty that private capital is now putting itself at risk to build and scale in areas that they haven't before i think overwhelmingly that is very positive and the biggest risk we have to the to the segment before about workforce or permitting or otherwise is that we don't follow through on the other necessary elements to actually allow that investment to happen and to provide the economic benefits i think that's the bigger risk of course you want to pay attention to the fiscal side but this goes to the structure of the inflation reduction act it had a dola- two dollars of deficit reduction for every dollar of investment so even if you take the the higher estimates right. by the end of the decade you're still just that bill alone is still generating 40 50 billion dollars of deficit reduction a year so you want to keep your eye on it but overall the more economic response we can have in terms of durable private investment in potentially high productivity areas of our economy that's a that's a very good
4: thing. okay two other questions for me yeah. uh one is We saw this headline this morning about venture capital, private equity um, being prevented effectively from investing in certain parts of the Chinese economic ecosphere, if you will, uh, depending on uh, which industries we're talking about. What do you think the ultimate impact of that is going to be in terms of just the relationship with China, how how things shift, etc.?
1: So I think the impact of this particular provision is going to be very small, but I don't think you should view it in isolation. This is part of a broader... Uh, dynamic, which I think is the most complicated economic dynamic the administration faces today, which is how to navigate this competition challenge with China, particularly around where and how to put real gates on investment and technology. This particular issue on limiting outbound investment is it's small, quantitatively. It's also a first test for this administration's theory of what they refer to as a small garden and a high wall. meaning focus very narrowly on a set of technologies that might have dual use application, that might have national security concern, make it very difficult right. for China in that context. I think that's what you'll see in the context of this outbound investment restriction uh, set of rules. It will then, the question over the course of the fall is when we look at other export controls and updating semiconductor export controls, CFIUS uh, restrictions on inbound investment to the United States, how can the United States stitch all of these things together? into a coherent strategy that says, there are some places where we really do need to deny, there are other places where it doesn't make sense. Okay,
4: Other final question from me. Yeah. Um, before your time in the White House, yes. you spent time working with, Black, uh, with BlackRock and Larry Fink yes. and helped them build arguably their ESG um, platform. Uh, Larry Fink has now publicly said that the phrase ESG has been uh, weaponized politically.
2: I don't use the word ESG anymore because it's been entirely weaponized. But it was weaponized by the far left and weaponized by the far right. So I'm not blaming one side or the other, but it's been totally weaponized. So I'm ashamed of being part of this uh, conversation. That was, when I write these letters, it was never meant to be a political statement. I don't believe they were written as a political statement. They were written for, to identify long-term issues.
4: There's been a massive pushback, as you've seen. And actually, some companies have really had to sort of navigate this in a unique way, including BlackRock, by the way, uh, recently uh, an announcing that they're putting the, the head of Aramco on the board uh, of BlackRock in a world of ESG. What A, what do you make of that? What do you make of what's happening here? And what do you make of the entire ESG movement?
1: So I, I've always thought and continue to think that the, the term ESG itself is... Um, does more to confuse than clarify Um, and that we actually always called what we were working on sustainable investing. You and I talked about Mm -hmm. it at at times and people said, well, that's just semantics. But I think it's more than that in the sense that sustainable investing, I think you're seeing is a basic fiduciary argument that if there are material factors to long-term uh, durable profitability around how you operate right. your business and how efficient you are with uh, with environmental issues or how effective you are at re- retaining a, uh, a talented workforce those are gonna matter over the long term I think if anything we've seen that play out uh, in terms of an investment thesis uh, o- over the course of time I think where it gets difficult is when people try to put everything onto an individual term and ESG lends itself t- uh, to that I will say out you know out of all of that confusion and out of all of that politicization i think what you're seeing is you're going to see an enormous boom in sustainable investing and the question and people may call it different things people may name it different things but at core the question is how do you generate durable long-term returns if you are thinking about investing anywhere in the world today and you don't have a view on what the for example the environmental impact is going to be on the investments that you're making you're probably not actually effectively allocating capital. And that's become, you know, that's become as mainstream as right. anything today.
4: Having the, the CEO of Aramco on the board of BlackRock, is that consistent or inconsistent with, with your, the idea of sustainability in your mind?
1: <laughs> okay. uh, I, the, beauty of, the beauty of sustainable investing from my perspective is individual companies make fiduciary decisions uh, that, and they'll make those calls on that front and the market will, the market will make a judgment on that.
4: Ryan Deese, uh, he is a politician of sorts. Uh, nice to see you, sir. Thank you.
3: Next on SquawkPod X, formerly known as Twitter, making changes to calm the fears of advertisers on the platform. Former White House Chief Technology
0: Officer Anish Chopra joins us. To the extent that we move towards standards, I think it'll be a benefit not just for X, but could be the market-leading approach for all social media platforms. And news you can use. Get your phone out
4: if you want to know this, because it's actually kind of surprising news about yourself that you're going to learn.
3: Save this podcast. Our Andrew Ross Sorkin helps Uber users help themselves.
4: Accounts. You're going to hit settings. You're going to go down to privacy. You're going to hit privacy
3: You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC, today with Andrew Ross-Sorkin and Melissa Lee. Here's Andrew.
4: X, formerly known as Twitter, attempting to win back advertisers with new brand safety tools, the platform partnering with a digital ad verification company to try to ensure that online ads don't appear near controversial content. Uh, Back in July, said the cash flow remained negative at X. Uh, because of a nearly fifty percent drop in ad revenue, CMC technology reporter Steve Kovac has been following the story and joins us now. How's what's happening here? Yeah, so they partnered with this company, IAS, which publicly traded company, by the way. I didn't know this till yesterday.
6: Um, and what they do is they can, or they claim they can do is. Before, if you're an advertiser, right. before your ad goes onto Twitter, mm-hmm. it can determine whether or not it's going to be next to, you know, so-called brand-safe content. And obviously, this is a move to kind of attract advertisers back. Whether or not this technology works as advertised is a, a whole other question, I guess. But this is this company works with other platforms as well. So this is not like a new or novel and this, idea. Is it a, a keyword? Um, they do keywords, and you can also do like level, like how restrictive do you want it to be, or how loose do
4: you want it to be too. So there's a can you sliding be scale. near people and near uh, not near other people? Could you say I don't want to be near any politicians, for example? That I don't know. I don't know or if you, you can said get that, that you granular. thought that, you know, I don't know. We were talking about Dave Portnoy this right. morning. Right. Even though if you thought that Dave Disney Portnoy was, want to be near was too hot to handle, well, could you say I don't need to? I don't want to be near Dave Portnoy. I, Others, by the way, may say they, they they're too I love close. Them. They may say, I love him. Right. They may say, I want to be next to every Elon Musk that <laughs> you're goes you're right. out. And other people may say, please keep me away, right? Well, here, here's the real issue here. Like, this is just a PR move until the advertisers start
6: showing up, right? Because that is the problem they're in. We see advertisers abandoning the platform. We see advertising growing on Facebook. We see but like, advertising. Do we, can-
4: do we continue to see an outflow? I mean, we, we, we just I, we talked about now, the 50% yeah. decline. Right, so maybe that's, that maybe a, it's bottomed out. That was a month ago. Right, so maybe it's we bottomed we think, out. Do we think anything's happened between now, we'll now think, and then? We'll have to
6: ask for Miss tomorrow when right. Sir Eisen interviews. Don't you are,
5: think that good things are happening, or what they can market as good things are happening because they're giving this interview? Do you think they would go on the air? I think it's, a, p- I think it's were, a pitch. I think it's a, it's a, pitch, it's a, pitch, a pitch to for advertisers. This, it's a pitch for this. Yeah. They're going to have some sort of numbers that seem to be good on the surface, and...
6: But look, for every number story. they get out, they've been putting out press releases like this since Linda Yaccarino right. took over. Mm-hmm. And for every move they make towards brand safety, you have Elon Musk undercutting it by allowing right. someone with. So, you, so sorry. So, yeah, so in probably, the
5: case of in the case of Twitter, because you have like a, a timeline that's constantly moving, right. what is close, or do you also define
6: that? Or, that I don't know how close. But look, yeah, if like, you scroll, like, if you scroll three scrolls and you see, right, exactly you know, something unsavory like an hour uh, ago right. or
5: you know
6: that's but it's right. next again this is very common think back to YouTube just I don't know several years ago ads are literally running against terrorist content right. and yeah. they had to fix that this is this is table stakes for digital advertising right. that they're doing here
4: okay now before you go since you are the yes. the leading tech reporter at the network and I just taught him something I thought we were going to teach the audience about something that well, I you're think the leading
5: actually, uber you're the leading uber, uber reporter. I don't
4: know about that but so <laughs> we were discussing that And viewers, get your phone out if you want to know this, because it's actually kind of surprising news about yourself that you're going to learn. So if you want to know, actually, the specific number of ratings, both five-star, four-star, three-star, and one-star ratings that you've been given over time, here's how you can actually find this information now. Uber puts it out on the app. So you're going to go, if you could, you're going to go to account. You can put this on a loop so people can find it again. You're going to hit settings. You're gonna go down to privacy. You're gonna hit privacy center. You're gonna hit see summary all the way to the left. You're gonna go down to ratings and you're gonna hit view my ratings and then you're gonna actually see how many five stars, four stars, three stars, two stars and one star ratings and you were Uh, upset about this I'm glad I didn't take a sip of coffee before I looked at this. uh,
6: I have 14 one star
4: ratings. I don't know what I'm doing in these Ubers. That's,
5: Apparently yeah. things that are hateful.
6: I,
4: I guess, now, but I do have 462 fives. To bring this home, I know a hedge fund manager, actually a viewer of this broadcast, mm-hmm. that has started in the middle of interviews when they're interviewing an applicant to come work at the, at the What company. is your rating? They say, show me your rating right I now. I love that. And w- literally, so they're asking you all these questions, right. and, and then they like, say, show... show me your rating. There's nowhere to hide. It's true. There's it's nothing true. to do. Right. And then the question, of course, is whether you believe that the rating is well, an accurate uh, assessment is, of th- is you that as a, a equal, person. So is that a, an
6: equal employment violation by asking that, though? Are you wealthy enough to afford Uber? That too. Um, but, but,
5: but here's my question. What if ratings are really old? What if my seven one-star ratings, which I am horrified <laughs> about... What if they happened like ten years ago when I, I started using they, Uber? I believe and that I they keep rolling. Waiting. I think they
4: roll the last oh, five hundred dri- rides, five six hundred rides is how they do it. That, that looks like Just to, to be about five hundred rides. Here. Yeah. So maybe I'll now, maybe I'll
5: lap the last stars. piece of news
4: I have been told. If you want to increase your rating,
5: yes. What is At it? the
4: end of the drive, what do you say? Tip cash? Look, no, look at, no, because the tip doesn't matter. By the way, yes. what does matter about this is the worse your rating, um, they. The driver has the choice of picking you up or not, so you may right. they may try to pick somebody up with a high rating. They don't know the tip, by the way. The tip has nothing to do with it. No, what you can do is look at them, flash them, and say, five stars for you. Ah. And you try to get a reciprocal five stars for you.
5: Five anyway, stars for you. Use may Maybe
4: use or not this morning on a, on a summer Tuesday. Uh, I feel Tuesday. like need I need that, like that rainbow, the more, you know. Oh, the more you know. Or summer Wednesday, I rainbow. should say. That's what it is today. It's,
5: that's that's yeah. the most useful thing you'll know today.
4: I'm going to try it right now when I go to the office. We'll put it on TikTok before it gets banned. (laughs)
5: 4.88 is my rating, by the way. X, formerly known as Twitter, betting on a new advertising tech partnership and enhanced safety tools for brands as ways to bring back ad revenue. Joining us now on this and X's evolution under Musk, Anish Chopra, the former White House chief technology officer and currently the president of Care Journey, which is a healthcare analytics company. Um, Great to have you, Anish. Welcome. Thanks for having me. What's your take on this? Because it seems like you know it's great to employ technology and filters like this to make sure or to try to make sure your ads are placed next to content that you are okay with. But then it's only as good as that filter is, right? It's only as good as that product. In this case, it's integral ad sciences.
0: Well, I think the important message here is it's moving towards industry standards. So while it was, the announcement was about a vendor contract, the bigger message is that they're aligning to standards set by the Global Alliance for Responsible Media, a multi-stakeholder body that's trying to wrangle and wrestle with what the filter criteria could be and should be. So to the extent that we move towards standards, I think it will be a benefit not just for X, but could be the market leading approach for all social media platforms. Frankly, to live up to the promise of what we originally envisioned with Section 230, where Platforms were competing and innovating on safety as much as uh, having that uh, liability protection.
5: So it sounds like there should be no doubts uh, then in investors' mind that that now X is, quote-unquote, a safe place to advertise if it has adopted these industry standards, or is that not the case?
0: It's a verb, not a noun. So uh, are the standards perfect today, and are we going to make sure that no one's ads apply next to a tweet that is perhaps questionable? I doubt it but uh, the verb is that we're in a process that's gonna be led by multi-stakeholder uh, feedback, so there'll be constant iteration. And that's what you want in uh, policy making, which is a little bit more agile response to problems. Think about the big picture. We either are gonna dial down the content that's on the platforms, which maybe Elon would characterize as censorship, or we're going to find ways to create products so advertisers can choose the path by which they want their advertising displayed on these social media platforms. By improving the quality uh, through technology and engineering on standards, we think we can introduce a new approach that I think the public is is going to benefit from and advertisers might feel more confidence in.
5: This is a little bit of a departure from the the stated topic, Anish, but I do want to ask you about AI. Um, yes. Because there's, uh, you know, how how do these standards apply to AI, or how can we apply these same standards? We don't necessarily know what a generative AI large language language model is going to spit out in terms of content, and yet you're going to ask advertisers to put their ads next to content theoretically. How how do you think about that?
0: Well, that's a little bit about this new muscle of government in an era of complex change, and that is to get industry commitments to work in a multi-stakeholder process to solve it. So you saw about a week and a half ago, the Biden administration secured pretty uh, significant commitments by large uh, platform players. And what they said was, among other things, that you would create more model transparency. So third parties can come in and audit to make sure that the models perform the way we expect them to perform. And more importantly, that they would watermark content generated by AI. So that could be another flag that could be in a, program like the X uh, example to say, I don't want any of my advertising next to a generated AI product out of fear that it may be uh, a deceptive. So you'll start to see these commitments take hold because they apply not just to one platform, but to many. And I think that's the area to look. We may see congressional action in the future, but for now, the most appropriate way to move forward is to get industry stakeholder uh, buy-in and participation. Right.
4: And Anish, we, we keep talking uh, about sort of ad safety, brand safety, and the like. But the truth is that actually, for the most part, and this is what I'm trying to think about the different platforms, that it's really about the ROI on the ad, fundamentally. And there's brand advertisers, which historically have advertised on Twitter, interestingly, more than sort of direct-to-consumer folks who are trying to actually, you know, ring the register in that moment. And so how do you think about those two types of advertisers in the context of this conversation about brand safety. Do do the folks who are just trying to ring the register in the moment care as much about the brand safety as somebody who's running uh, an image campaign?
0: Well, that was the most interesting thing in the announcement, which is that buried in the details was this idea that uh, X would continue to invest in more choose-your-own-adventure approaches. So the idea was uh, transparency, so you could choose what level of tolerance you have on potentially flagged content And there could be advertisers that actually see the ROI for something that may go viral, that may be controversial, but that does generate more click-throughs. So rather than having a one-size-fits-all, I think the message here is transparency with better information gives control in the hands of advertisers. And I think that's probably the way this is gonna have the market choose that we have a competitive market economy uh, we will find it be interesting on the back end to study uh, which advertisers chose the let it rip approach versus others that took a more conservative and we'll see whether shareholders would reward or or uh, penalize based on those judgments
5: sounds like you like what x is doing right now anish
0: well they published that yeah their algorithms are public They've committed to this principle of, uh, of, of industry standards. So those are all reasonably uh, thoughtful uh, ideas. Does that mean we personally like when Elon goes off the rails with tweets that kind of rub us the wrong way? I don't think so. Uh, please don't take my comments as endorsement of some of his behavior. But the actions are very much an engineering problem-solver mind- mindset. And I wish to celebrate that because we need that to solve problems.
5: Anish, thanks.
0: you got a big
4: day ahead big day in terms of long like a long day but you know what's <laughs> going to be the hot hot news when your show is on the air disney
5: earnings disney earnings maybe
4: what does bob iger say what does he yeah. not say about betting about linear about what he does ESPN, with assets yeah exactly hulu all of it
5: yeah you know what i'm going to be doing mover. watching you oh that's that, nice
4: that's the plan mark mark your calendars set, set your timer what o'clock. you got to do um, Lisa, thank you for hanging out. I think I'm seeing you on Friday and we'll see you tonight.
3: That's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening. And if you've been listening for a while and you like what you hear, let us know. You can write a review of Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts or give us a rating.
4: Five star, four star.
3: That tells us what you're thinking and helps other listeners find us as well. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thanks to Melissa Lee for sitting in. And we'll meet you right back here tomorrow.
2: We are clear. Thanks, guys.